Well, good morning, Lakeside. It is great to have all of you here on this beautiful February day. Uh, today, we're going to continue our study in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, which is preserved in your Bible as the book of 1 Corinthians. And as we get started, I want to share a personal admission with you, and it is tied to this image. So what do you see when you look at that photo, those photos? Because to me, I look at that, and they look almost exactly alike. I don't see a big difference between them. And this is, it's an eye test because the one on the left is what a person with normal color vision sees. What someone, the one on the right is what someone who's got some level of red-green deficiency sees. And honestly, they look pretty much the same to me. And this was something I didn't know for a long time. I didn't know I was seeing the world differently as a kid than a lot of other people. Because until I was about 12, we had a black and white television. And I did not grow up in the 1950s. This was like the 1980s. But we didn't let that stop our fun because I remember we would sit down and watch shows like fireworks displays in black and white. And my mom would always say, boy, I bet that's beautiful in color. And then eventually we get a color television and I start hearing people talk and I realize that I am not seeing the world the same as everybody else. And then eventually I realized this can actually be corrected if you get the right kind of glasses. They, they block certain wavelengths and you can start to see all color. And when you see somebody for the first time, put these on, it's an amazing response they have. And, and it can even be emotional. I'm gonna show you two clips here of people who are putting on these glasses and seeing full color for the first time. Your phone looks different? It's like this looks they're like pretty similar, but this pink, like this. <laughs> you can tell orange. Yeah. What else is it? What are you talking about? The streamers. Wait a second. It's <laughs> ah! green. I thought it was all orange. How did I think it was all orange? That's <laughs> That guy is what sticks with me. When he says, how did I think it was all orange? He's just had his mind blown because he just realized he has not been seeing the world as it actually is for his entire life. Those glasses had opened up this new world to him. And I think that's really what Paul's talking about in this passage we're looking at today. He's talking about what happens in the spiritual and the intellectual life of a person. When they accept Christ, they see things they have never seen before. You know, it's no coincidence that all through the Gospels, as it's being rolled out, who Jesus actually is, blindness keeps showing up as a theme. And one of the passages I want to show you here is in Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 30. And I'm showing you how it appears on the website of the Bible Gateway, because I want you to see the structure. Those first 22 through 26, Jesus heals a man who is physically blind. And then immediately after that, Mark gives us the story where Peter realizes who Jesus is. Peter realizes Jesus of Nazareth is actually the son of God. He's the Messiah. And Mark sets those next to each other so we can see just as a man needs his physical blindness healed, we need our spiritual blindness healed. And if you go to the book of Matthew where this story is told, Matthew 16, Jesus explains how Peter realized that. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter received miraculous new sight through God's actions. Over the last couple of weeks in 1 Corinthians, we have seen Paul talking about 
that to most of the world, the message of salvation through Jesus Christ, it just seems like foolishness. But here in chapter two, Paul is saying a believer gets new eyesight and they see things as they really are for the very first time. In another one of his letters, Paul uses this language of blindness. We look in Ephesians chapter one, verses 16 through 18. Paul says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? God gives us this new spiritual eyesight. And once we've received it, that gift of new sight, we can spend the rest of our life looking back saying, how did I ever think it was orange? How did I not see this the whole time? Paul's message for us, we're gonna look at today in this chapter, is that the path to spiritual sight goes like this. It's a hidden wisdom revealed by the spirit that transforms us. So let's start with that hidden wisdom. Last week, Pastor Joel showed us Paul was determined to make people understand, I'm not preaching human wisdom here. He didn't want anybody trusting human wisdom, but that doesn't mean there wasn't wisdom in the message. It's just that it was a different kind of wisdom than the Corinthians were used to hearing from their culture around them. Just like it's different from the culture would teach you that we live in today. And it is a very good thing that God's message is different. Because Paul tells us in verse six, what's gonna happen to worldly wisdom? He says, it is doomed to pass away. It's a dead end. And Paul gives us proof. If you need proof of how short-sighted worldly wisdom is, he shows us in verse eight, he points out if the rulers of this age had understood God's plan, they never would have crucified Jesus. Because what they didn't realize is they thought they were stopping Jesus, they were actually carrying out God's plan that Jesus had to die to pay for our sins. They never would have done that if they understood what was happening. So Paul's telling us there is this massive storehouse of wisdom sitting just outside of human eyesight. And we see it only when the Holy Spirit gives us that new spiritual eyesight that is gained only when we put our faith in Jesus Christ as the only hope for eternal life because of his death and resurrection in our place. And we really should stop and notice in verse nine, how Paul describes this wisdom. He's saying, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. This wisdom, it is beyond you, anything you've ever experienced before. You've never seen anything like it. You've never heard about anything like it. You've never even imagined something like this. It's so far beyond the scope of our imagination. And we think about it, how often do we lose hope in a situation? because we can't see a path forward. When we can't come up with a solution, we, we're tempted to think, well, God must be stumped too, because I'm stumped, I don't know what's next. Or because we can't comfort ourselves out of our own pain, we think, well, God must be at a dead end too. But the thing that makes the secret wisdom of God so important, so different, is it's beyond what we can even imagine. God is constantly working outside our scope of reference. That's what makes him different than us and greater than us. Do you think the Israelites foresaw a path through an ocean, through a sea to get them out of danger? No. Do you think the disciples thought they would ever see Jesus again when his body went into a grave? No, those are miracles. They were outside of any kind of expectation. We have to quit thinking that God can't do something just because we've never seen a person do that thing before. 
Our new spiritual eyesight given by the Spirit teaches us to expect God's solutions to come from outside anything a human would actually do. Just think about the the whole plane of salvation. It's the ultimate example of that. Think about this. Every world religion, except for one, says that man has to go to God. In every world religion, humans have to make some kind of pilgrimage to get to God. They have to keep some kind of code of conduct to get to God. They have to make a certain number of sacrifices to get to God. But then there's Christianity. There's only one religion where God comes down to us, to anybody. If you meet someone who says, well, Christianity, it's just another made-up human religion. Ask them this. Doesn't it strike you as odd that every time a human makes up a religion, it involves us going to God, except for this one case? Doesn't it make you stop and think, well, if Christianity isn't structured like any other human-made religion, maybe it's not a human-made religion. It came from outside the system. Christianity doesn't line up with the wisdom of this age, and that's what makes it the message of salvation. And here is some great news. The joys of following God, this wisdom we get, it's not just for the next life. It benefits us in this one. In verse seven here, Paul says, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. And that phrase for our glory, I think that gets misinterpreted a lot. People see that and they think, well, that means in heaven. That means in the next life, we'll understand things and we will, but it's not just in heaven. We get to understand mysteries in this life. Because look at the the verbs here. Paul says in verse six, we impart wisdom to you. That's present tense. In verse 10, he said, God has revealed these things to us. That's past tense. The mystery revealed to us in this life is how God saves humans. We have been enlightened through the spirit to understand the gospel message of Christ, if we're a believer. And now we're gonna get to my favorite part of this message. We get to talk about how this was revealed to us by the spirit. So as Christians, we get to know these wonderful secrets How? According to verse 10, it's because of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has revealed these things to us. Now, when you start talking about the Holy Spirit, you're probably going to get two responses. There'll be some of you sitting there going, finally, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. It's been a long time. Some of you are going to cross your arms and say, I don't know about this Holy Spirit stuff. It's a little touchy-feely. And I know you're crossing your arms because if you're scared of the Holy Spirit, you do not move your arms in church. Guaranteed, right? Well, I grew up in that kind of church. I grew up in the kind of church where we did not really know what to do with the Holy Spirit because we couldn't illustrate him on a poster in a Sunday school room, so we we couldn't figure it out. But if we fail to talk about the Holy Spirit, we got a problem. It's a big problem for us. I read a sermon this week by Charles Spurgeon. Long time ago, he told his congregation, you need to repent for how little we talk about the Holy Spirit. I think that's true of us too. In this passage, Paul says the Holy Spirit is at the very center of us understanding the mysteries of God. So how about if let's work on it? Let's work on getting comfortable with the Holy Spirit, all right? And we're going to do that. I want to talk about why is the Holy Spirit such a tough topic for us? I think the first one is, well, there's just too much controversy. Talking about the Holy Spirit at church, I think it sometimes feels like you just brought up politics at the Thanksgiving table. Like, don't touch it. Because if you go to another church down the road, you're going to get a different take on what the Holy Spirit does. If you look down the row you're sitting in, you'll probably get a different take on what the Holy Spirit does. 
People vary on this. And a lot of times churches say, you know what? We're just not gonna touch it. We're not gonna talk about the Holy Spirit. That's not acceptable, okay? The Holy Spirit shows up throughout scripture. We have to talk about him. Next, we just don't know what to do with the Spirit, do we? If you grew up the King James Bible, you have a special obstacle here because it's called the Holy Ghost. Well, ghost is like, that sounds like something, one, I don't know what to do with. And number two, I probably shouldn't mess with. (laughs) It's a ghost. And even the term Holy Spirit, that is hard to get our head around. You think about the Trinity. We, We can visualize the Father and the Son pretty well because we know what fathers look like. We know what sons look like. But a spirit, what do we do with that? When I was a kid, and bear with me, I was a kid. I had this vision of the Trinity. I would picture the father and the son sitting at a breakfast table in a house and the Holy Spirit was outside looking through a window (laughs) because he wasn't part of the family. Not good theology, but I was like 10, okay? Because I didn't know what to do with that. I I didn't understand how he fit in. But I think one of the, the big reasons we don't know what to do with the Holy Spirit is because he always points away from himself. The Spirit's job description makes him difficult for us to understand because the Spirit's job is to point attention away from himself. The Spirit is often compared to floodlights on a building, like a church. You're looking at what it illuminates. You don't look at the floodlight itself. And the Spirit is always pointed at glorifying the Father and the Son. He's never pointed at glorifying himself. One writer said that the Spirit's message is never look at me, listen to me, come to me, get to know me. His message is always look at him, see his glory, listen to him, hear his word, go to him, have life, get to know him and taste his gift of joy and peace. So if we're ready to commit ourselves, okay, we're, we're gonna embrace the Holy Spirit, we're gonna learn more about him, what should we think about the Holy Spirit? Well, first, always remember he is God. He is part of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is not a separate entity empowered by God. He is God. The Spirit knows everything that God knows, which means he knows everything. How do you truly know someone's thoughts? How does the Spirit know everything God does? You have to be inside someone's mind, don't you, to know their thoughts? That's exactly in verse 11. That's where Paul says the Holy Spirit is in the mind of God. That's possible because the Spirit is God. Next, and I've probably already messed this up in this sermon so far. We should refer to the Spirit as a he, not it. I think a lot of people, they think of the Holy Spirit as something like the force in Star Wars. You know, Obi-Wan Kenobi says it's an energy field that surrounds all living things, surrounds us, it binds the galaxy together. That's not what the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is not some new agey force that's just floating around out there. The Spirit is a person. In the New Testament, we see the Holy Spirit speaking. We see him making decisions. We see him being grieved. We see him doing all the things that a person does. And the key there is the Spirit is not some force like gravity that we can learn to manipulate and control. The Spirit is a person that we get to know, that we have a relationship with. So it does matter what we call the Holy Spirit. We have to say he and not it because personhood matters. If you don't think so, call your spouse it all week. See how that goes for you. Not a good relationship. The next thing about the Holy Spirit, he was promised to us by Jesus. 
When you read through the New Testament, you see every member of the Trinity doing their job in our salvation. God the Father sent Jesus his son to pay the price for our sins by dying on the cross in our place and rising again. And then Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would come to help us. In John 16, he says this, verses 13 and 14, when the spirit of truth comes, he, notice Jesus doesn't say it, he will guide you into all truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, there is that spotlight, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So he says the spirit will come. And then in Acts chapter two, we see that happen on the day called Pentecost, when the spirit comes to every single person who's a true believer in Jesus Christ, which is the next point, the spirit indwells believers. Now the Holy Spirit shows up in the Old Testament, even if you don't see that always using that name. And in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come, give specific messages to people like prophets, and then go away. Sometimes for years, no one would hear from him. Sometimes the Holy Spirit would come to a specific person like King Saul, but the Holy Spirit could also leave like he did King Saul. But then we come to the New Testament. In Acts chapter two at Pentecost, we suddenly see the Holy Spirit comes to every single person who believes in Jesus Christ as their savior. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul says, a believer is a temple where the spirit dwells. The spirit comes into you and lives there. And understand the spirit stays with that person forever if they are a true follower of Christ. There is no such thing as some believers who are with the spirit and some who aren't. If you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit. And this is a massive change in human history. The fact that the God of the universe sends his spirit to indwell a person, that is what changed after Pentecost. Next, the Holy Spirit empowers every aspect of human life. Christian life, I should say every aspect of Christian life. Throughout the New Testament, we see the Spirit, he is the source for us. He helps us overcome our temptations. He helps us speak properly. He helps us live in unity with other believers. He helps us pray. He helps us understand what we're reading in the Bible. We depend wholly on the Holy Spirit to guide us through this life. And then lastly, he is not just another name for our own thoughts. Now, this is a place a lot of people kind of get sideways when they start talking about the Holy Spirit because people start to think every thought they have must be what the Holy Spirit is telling them. But we have to remember, the voice, our own mind, will lead us astray. Our flesh is sinful. The Holy Spirit will only lead us to what is true. And the one big test you can use to put any feeling you're having, you're trying to say, is this me thinking this or is this the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit will never tell you to do something contrary to scripture, ever. So if someone tells to you, hey, I got a word from the Holy Spirit, you say, so do I, let's compare it to this, right? And if they're consistent, then we can believe it's the Holy Spirit leading us. So when we add all that truth up, we ought to be just blown away at what all that means. Paul is telling us the God of the universe indwells you if you're a follower of Christ. And make sure you realize this. When you read stories in the Old Testament and you see the spirit of God come upon someone like Samson and he does something like rip lions in half or defeat a Philistine army, that is the same spirit that indwells every follower of Jesus Christ today. We are not called to rip lions apart and defeat armies. 
But we have the Spirit helping us do what we're called to do, which is tell others about Christ, to defeat our own temptations. And we have to remember that the same lion-ripping, Philistine-destroying spirit of the Old Testament is in us, helps us with our battles that we face today. We have to remind ourselves of that. On the days when we feel powerless and we feel weak and we feel like we're just helpless against the circumstances that we're in. If you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. You're not doing this all by yourself. That's why Paul, at the end of Romans chapter eight, this huge chapter in the Bible, at the end of chapter eight, he just exults when he reflects on what God has done. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And when you see him say you're more than conquerors, remember, Jesus was not a political Messiah. Jesus was not a military Messiah. He's not saying you're here to conquer your fellow man. He's saying you can conquer your flesh. Jesus already conquered death. You can conquer the temptations you face through the spirit in you. So with the Holy Spirit inside of us, we become something completely different than we were before. It transforms us. Here in verses 14 through 16, Paul sets up this contrast between a natural person and a spiritual person. What's the difference? Well, simply put, one is an unsaved person who still has spiritual blindness, and the other is a saved person. And remember, a saved person doesn't just see things differently. A saved person sees things as they are. They are seeing reality. A natural person is someone who they just cannot recognize the value in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That, that doesn't mean they're not smart, okay? This is, these are people, they can certainly comprehend the facts of the gospel. They just don't accept it as life-saving truth. So this explains how you can have somebody who's got multiple PhDs who looks at the story of Jesus and says it's just a foolish fairy tale. Going back to the colorblind guy, they can't see. They can't see, it's not all orange. They just don't recognize it. In the last couple of years, I've been following, there's an artist who runs a social media account called Subpar Parks. Subpar Parks, and what she does is she goes online, she finds people who have written one-star reviews of national parks, and then she makes art around it. So she makes things like this, this is the Grand Canyon. Somebody wrote this review, it's a hole, a very, very large hole. That is basically what happens when the natural person looks at the gospel of Jesus Christ. They cannot see what anybody sees in it. They look at it, and they look at the Grand Canyon. They say, that's a big hole. That's it. A Christian looks at a big hole and says, that's the Grand Canyon. An unsaved person looks at the gospel of Jesus and says, it's a foolish old tale. A person who's been given spiritual sight says, that is the savior of mankind, the son of God. And that should just keep happening throughout a spiritual person's life. A natural person will look at a situation and say, it's hopeless. A spiritual person said, God's at work here somehow. I'm gonna trust him. A natural person looks at death and says, that's the end. There's no more. There's no more hope. 
A spiritual person says, if a person has put their faith in Jesus, death is the door to eternal life. As Christians, when we talk to unsaved people and hear just the fact they can't see it, that ought to make us grateful that God has opened our eyes, that we can understand this. We should remind ourselves from time to time how our view has changed. We should be like that guy in the video, should lower the glasses and say, remember how I used to see the world? You look at the world and you think, wow, I can't believe I used to think that was important because now I see the truth. You should lower the glasses and say, I can't believe I used to be afraid of that because now I know God's got it. I can trust in him. When we remind ourselves how much our view has changed, we ought to constantly be driven back to say thank you to God for giving us the Holy Spirit. So we've established every true follower of Christ has the Spirit with them. But as we're going to see next week in chapter 3, Paul is going to tell some of these Corinthian believers that they are stuck at an immature stage of their faith. So even though we have the Spirit, we can be more connected to him or less connected to him. In Galatians 5, Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And he tells Christians there, you need to walk with the Spirit so he can do his full work in our lives. So the Spirit's work in our lives is dependent on what we are putting into it. So in closing, I want to look at the practical things we can do to walk with the Spirit in our lives. First of all, you have to trust Christ. If you haven't taken this step, you do not have the Holy Spirit with you, period. It is true only of believers that the Holy Spirit is with us. So if you have religion in your life, but it just sits there flat, if your religion is doing nothing for you, that might mean you don't have the Spirit because it's not alive to you. If you read scripture and you feel like your eyes are just bouncing off the page, I can't get anything out of it, you might not have the Spirit with you. So think about, do I truly, have I truly repented? Have I truly trusted in Christ as my only hope? Because until you put your faith in Christ, you will continue in a state of spiritual blindness. These things won't make sense. So the first step is trusting Christ as your savior. And from there, now you go and you live obediently because the spirit's work in our lives is linked to our commitment to obeying him. One writer described it like this. It's a cycle of obedience and knowledge because if you obey God, you will get to know him better. And the more you know him, the more you want to obey him because you understand how amazing he is. And as I obey him and as I get to know him better, I want to obey him more and then I know him more and it just keeps going and going. And that's how we mature as Christians. The spirit will illuminate scripture for you, but you do have to put in the effort on your part. That's why last year we taught more than 100 people here at Lakeside how to study scripture. That's why right now we have different Bible studies. I think we have more than 60 ladies right now doing the hard work of studying scripture for themselves. And I've talked to you ladies, it's hard work, I know. You're putting in effort to do that. God will reward that. You're applying yourself to understand his word better. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show yourself approved. Study it, put in the effort. And that flows right into what we're talking about. You have to immerse yourself in scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 lists all the ways that the written word of God benefits us says all scripture is breathed out by God. That means written by the Holy Spirit. And look at all the ways scripture helps us. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, 
equipped for every good work. Scripture is going to give us all those things when we turn to it and the Spirit helps us understand it. Now, a lot of times I will hear people say, well, I'm not much of a reader. I just don't like to read. Christians, that's not an option, okay? There's no other way around it. God has spoken to us through his printed word. This is how he wrote down the truth. We have to make the effort to get into it. You have to apply yourself to learning God's word. Roll up your sleeves and engage with it. And then on those times when you feel like, I try and it doesn't make sense, go to the next step. Pray for guidance. When your eyes are just getting nowhere, when you're reading scripture, go to the spirit and ask for help understanding it. A great verse, it's very simple. Psalm 119.18. Just say, say, Lord, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Ask the spirit to make you see what God's message is for you in scripture. The next, be quiet. This is a tough one for Americans. We don't like doing this. There's a famous story in 1 Kings chapter 19. God is talking to Elijah. And Elijah's waiting to hear from God. And there is this massive windstorm that rips through the mountains. But God's voice is not in the windstorm. Then there's a huge earthquake that rattles the landscape. But it says God's voice was not in the earthquake. Then there's a fire that destroys everything around. But 1 Kings 19 says God was not in the fire and then finally, in 1 Kings 19, 12, it says, after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And God was in that whisper. God often appears to us in ways that are far more quiet than what we're looking for. This is why Christians for centuries have listed silence and solitude on the same list of spiritual disciplines with prayer and reading the Bible. We have to be listening for God's voice. Actual silence is something you should plan into your schedule. And just as important as physical silence is mental silence. Quieting all the noise in your head because how else are you gonna hear the spirit whispering to you? A few years ago, I, I had the chance to go to India on a missions trip. If you've been to India, you know this is like the noisiest place on the planet. There's literally a billion people there. They're all packed in. There's music blaring everywhere you go. People, I'm not kidding, they drive, they use their horns as turn signals. So everybody honks the horn 24-7, wherever you're at. So it is just a deafening place to be. But I spent two weeks there, and I was with pastors, and I was with deacons, and I was with other believers. And over those two weeks, I felt more connected to the Spirit than any other time. And then a funny thing happens. I come home to America, and I notice how silent it is here. It is so quiet compared to India on the outside. But then all the noise started back up in here because now I'm back to my regular routine and now I got mental noise and now I'm having a hard time hearing the spirit like I did when I was over there. So we have to work to clear our minds and be listening to the word of the, the voice of God through the Holy Spirit. Do you make time for that? And I know you're thinking I'm too busy. Who has time for that? But just process what you're saying. If you don't make time to just sit and be quiet and listen for God, what you're saying is, God of the universe, thank you for filling me with the Holy Spirit, but I got other things to do, so I'll put it aside. Not what you want to be telling God. And then the next one just ties right into what I just talked about, the experience I had in India. Surround yourself with believers. 
Back in January, I was talking about when you ask, where is God? He often shows up through his people. Get yourself around other Christians. God will speak into your life through other believers. Surround yourself with them. And then lastly, look for his work in your life. Jeremiah 20, 13 says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. We don't have to go to God. He has come to us, but we do have to look for the evidence of him in our lives consciously. Notice where he's working in your life. Be on the lookout for what he's doing. A lot of people call these God moments. Those are the times when something happens that nothing explains this other than it was God's action in your life. Write those down. Take record of them. If you're a parent, talk to your kids when that happens. You want your kids to grow up hearing you pointing out where God has worked in your family's life so that they know he is present. They know he's doing things around you. And learn to be specific in your language. I think about when you tell someone, hey, God laid on my heart, I should give you a call and check on you. That's true, but you should say the Holy Spirit laid on my heart that I should call you. If we talk more about the Holy Spirit, we'll get used to looking for him more in our lives. And once I started realizing that I needed to do this more, I need to be looking for the Holy Spirit in my life, I need to be thankful for what the Spirit is doing, well, I start seeing him all over the place. And I'll just give you one example. Five years ago or so, I decided it was time for me to quit doing what I was doing, and I thought I should go into ministry. But I didn't know what that looked like. I didn't know if that meant go to a, work at a church. I didn't know if that meant missions, if that meant Christian publishing, because I was coming out of the publishing field. I didn't really know. So I started going around to a lot of, I surrounded myself with believers. I started going to Christians, and I would sit down with them. I'd say, hey, what do you think I should do? And I'd say, look, you know me, you look at my life, what do you think I'm good at, what should I do? And finally one day, I felt God telling me, well, I should say the Holy Spirit, right? Training myself. I felt the Holy Spirit say, Trevor, you need to quit asking and you need to start telling. Basically, he was saying, quit asking people and just write it down. You've asked enough questions. What do you feel led to do? So I sat down and I wrote basically a job description. I just started listing tasks. And I said, I think I should probably do this. And I think I should probably do this. And I think this would be the right setting probably for me. So I did that. I put it in a drawer and I kind of forgot about it. Six months later, I meet this dude named Dave Heisterkamp. <laughs> and he and I get to know each other. And he calls me one day and he said, hey, could we meet at Smoky Row? I just want to see what's going on. And we sat down and he said, you know, there's this position at Lakeside Fellowship that we're going to have coming up. And I wonder if you might be a fit for it. And I said, well, what is it? And he starts describing, he said, well, it would be this and it would be this. And he's talking, I realize he is literally going down the list of things I'd written on that paper six months ago. That's the Holy Spirit. That is the whisper saying, I'm right here. I'm guiding you. And you have to note these things. You have to write them down. You have to tell people. That's why I'm telling you that story. Look for those things in your own life. Where has God led you through the Holy Spirit? So to those who trust in Christ, God has given this incredible gift to us through the Spirit. He's given us this incredible new sight that should leave us. We should be looking at our old lives, just like the guy in the video and say, I cannot believe I ever thought all of it was orange. I can't believe I ever saw things like that. As we close, I want to share some thoughts from this Spurgeon sermon that I talked about that he gave to his church a long time ago. And he encouraged his congregation at the end of his sermon. And I think it's what we need to hear here at Lakeside. 
This is what he said. Love the spirit. Worship the spirit. Trust the spirit. Obey the spirit. And as a church, cry mightily to the spirit. Beseech him to let his mighty power be known and felt among you. The Lord fire your hearts with this sacred flame, for as this made Pentecost stand out from all other days, may it make this year in our church stand out in our history from all other years. Let that be our prayer today. Let's pray. Lord, where do we, where do we begin to thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit? You have poured it out upon us. And as we said at the, at the beginning, we ought to repent for how little we talk about the Spirit. Lord, I know I have in thinking through this. You have opened our eyes to truth and you, you are a daily guide in this life. And though it, it probably feels odd to many of us, we can and should pray directly to the Holy Spirit. So today I do, I say, Holy Spirit, we ask you, convict us of our sin. Show us when we're wrong. Help us to fight temptation. Holy Spirit, instruct us. Help us to understand what we read when we study the Bible. And Holy Spirit, comfort us when our hearts are breaking. Comfort us when we don't know what to do. Give us wisdom when we have no idea what we should do in the next step. And for all those who are here this morning who have yet to put their faith in Jesus as their Savior, Holy Spirit, open their eyes. Show them that they are bound for an eternity away from God. Open their eyes to their need for a Savior. And Holy Spirit, make us see your hand in our lives. Help us to see it every day so that we can rejoice in what you do for us. Help us learn to listen more closely to that soft whisper of your leading. Let us be quiet so we hear it. It's because of Jesus' work on the cross that we have you, Holy Spirit, with us. It's because of Jesus' work on the cross that we can speak directly to God. We thank you for that. And in his name we pray, amen.